We're gonna be in Philippians chapter one, just verses one and two today, just the introduction. God's word says to us, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab a seat. Now, before we actually jump into looking at the text itself, whenever we start a new sermon series at Story Church, I like to just kind of step back and and do a broad overview of the book. And so we want to look at Philippians as a whole. So so let, let, let me trace for you a little bit of how the church at Philippi gets started. So if you were to go to the book of Acts and you were to go to Acts chapter 13, you would see the church at Antioch praying for Paul and for Barnabas, and they would set them aside and send them off to go plant churches throughout the ancient known world. And so Paul and Barnabas go and do that. And this is commonly called Paul's first missionary journey. And so they plant all these churches and and it's wildly successful Now, eventually, word gets back to Jerusalem that there are pagans and Gentiles coming to the Christian faith. And so if you go to Acts chapter 15, you would see what's called the Jerusalem Council. You see, the the Jews who became Christians, they were requiring extra laws and customs in order for Gentiles to come into the church. Most prominently, they were asking for the men to be circumcised. And there was all kinds of arguments around this. And the elders there at Jerusalem pulled aside and they prayed and they they discussed and they considered what does it mean to be a Christian? And they came to the right conclusion that you become a Christian by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. There are no other extra requirements or laws or customs to keep to be invited into faith and invited into the church. And, and as a result of this, Paul and Barnabas get into a little tiff and they separate. So Paul, undeterred, he grabs Silas and eventually Timothy and Luke, and he begins his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16. Now, Paul's original intention during his second missionary journey was to retrace the steps of his first missionary journey. He wanted to go back to all the churches he had planted to encourage them, support them, and build them up. And then you see in Acts chapter 16 what's called the Macedonian call. This was when Paul wanted to go back towards that first missionary journey, but the Holy Spirit prevented him. He was unable to go the way he intended to go. And then he has a dream where this Macedonian man says, come to me and help us. Come to us and help plant churches here. And so Paul, obedient to the Holy Spirit, takes Silas and they end up sailing towards Macedonia. And their first stop was a little city, not little, but a city called Philippi. Philippi is where Paul planted the first European church and he plants it around AD 48. So around 48. to to 50 AD. And and then he spends some time there. He raises up pastors there. And then he leaves this church and he moves on to Thessalonica, where we get first and second Thessalonians. Now, Paul spends about 10 or 12 years continuing on his missionary journeys, and he eventually becomes a prisoner of Rome. And around AD 60-ish, 
is when he writes the letter of Philippians. He hears uh, stories of what's going on in the church at Philippi, both encouraging and sad things. And so he writes this letter to them and he says, I want you to hear some things and know some things and I want to encourage you in the gospel and teach you what is true and remind you of what is true. So Paul's intention with this letter is to support this church that he had planted about 12 years earlier and most prominently he wanted to support them with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so some themes we see within this letter of Philippians, you see unity within diversity. Paul is encouraging that because of the gospel. You see that the Philippian Christians were facing persecution in Philippi and Paul says, endure your persecution because of the gospel. He teaches them what it means to recognize and resist false teachers and to love what is true, most prominently love the one true story, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He teaches them that their calling as Christians is to boldly preach the gospel and make disciples of Jesus regardless of their circumstances. And undergirding all of those themes is this idea of an unending joy in all things that the Christian can have a joy regardless of their circumstances because a Christian's joy is not based on their circumstances. The Christian's joy is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ in our place. And so Paul teaches them that as you give, as you serve, as you go, as you suffer, as you live your regular everyday life, the underwriting emotion of every Christian should be and can be the joy that only Jesus Christ brings us. And what he wants to do here in this introduction is teach the Philippian Christians that their identity is all about the joy that Jesus wants to give them. And so here is the main point that we're gonna look at this morning. With that in mind, the main point is this. The journey to joy begins with understanding who we are because of what Christ has done. You see, if you're anything like me, when you get an email or a letter, you, you don't read the first line like, hey, Travis, or what's up, Travis? Hope you're doing well, Travis. Like I just skip right past that straight to the body of, of the email, right? And we tend to do that when reading the scriptures as well. Verses one and two are, is, is Paul's introduction to this letter. And we've probably read it over and over and over again. And the natural tendency of all of us is to skip right past that and get to the body. But that's not what we need to do. What we need to do is let the weight of what Paul is communicating sit here for a second, because in his introduction, he's giving Christians their identity. Now, now, now here's what I mean by that. Typically, when I introduce myself to someone, I did it a few times this morning, I just throw my hand out and say, hey, I'm Travis. Or what's up? I'm Travis. Now, if I were to do a more formal or even a more ancient type of introduction, I would do something like this. Hello, my name is Travis of the Cunningham clan. I am from Rancho Cucamonga, which is located in Southern California. I am identifying myself. I'm identifying the family I come from. Most often your family teaches what your line of work is. You teach where you're from, your geography, where you're located, which shapes the way you view the world and you receive the world. You see this, uh, if you've ever seen the TV show Vikings, right? 
And maybe I can pick on a couple of the Scots here at Story Church because they have great names for this. Um, so, so the first one, we'll, we'll go with Scott Sorensen. Now, if the tall, pale, red-headed Scott that you meet doesn't give it away, his last name is Sorensen. Now, what does that teach you? It teaches you he's Scandinavian. Okay, that's a strong Scandinavian name. And it also teaches you the family he comes from, the son of Soren, right? It's right there in the introduction, in the identity. Or Scott Workman, right? That's a good British name right there. And it tells you what his family does. They're, they're worker, workers, man. Like, get it? That's what they do. He's a worker man. Your introduction identifies who you are. And that's what Paul is doing here in opening Philippians. And so here's the outline that we're going to look at. The journey to joy begins by understanding we are servants of Christ Jesus. We are saints in Christ Jesus. And we are recipients of God's good gifts. Okay, that's our identity, and that is what leads us on the journey to joy. So let's jump back up to the very first part of the book, just the first line there. Philippians opens like this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Seven little words you have read over and over and over again, but I doubt we, again, we have let the weight of these words settle in our souls. We learn from those seven little words that the journey to joy begins by understanding we are servants of Christ Jesus. Now, you're hearing that and you're probably like, yeah, what's the big deal with that? I've heard that on repeat at Story Church, but I want you to take a second and think, who is the person authoring this letter? It's right there in the address, Paul, accompanied by Timothy. Now let's think for a second about who that is. Paul, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the most towering figure in our faith's history, without, without exception. So Paul, his Hebrew name was Saul, and he was a persecutor and a murderer of Christians, and he has this dramatic conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And Paul would go on to, after he gets converted to the faith, he would go on to write 13 books in the New Testament. He plants untold churches. He baptizes unnumbered Christians. Paul was a dynamic missionary, a powerful church planter, a convicting preacher, a caring pastor, a gifted evangelist, an astute theologian, a brilliant teacher, an itinerant preacher, and a prolific author. Paul is the most towering figure in our faith's history outside of Jesus Christ. And then he's accompanied here by Timothy. This is Paul's hand-selected protege and eventual successor. Timothy is born with parents of dueling faiths, and he eventually gets raised in the Christian faith by his mother and his grandmother, and he becomes Paul's constant sidekick, supporter, companion, prayer partner, coworker, and again, Paul's hand-selected successor, who Paul would say, you're the one I wanna shape and mold. Follow me, come with me. Now with that in mind, these two, Paul and Timothy, of anyone in the New Testament could walk into any church and amongst any group of Christians and say, show me the green room, where's my honorarium check, and leave me alone. Paul could walk in, into any room and command attention because of his title and because of his history. But Paul refuses to do that. Paul says, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. 
Now, here's the truth, friends. If service is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. Paul knew this. Paul knew that to be a leader in Christ's church means that you lay your life down in service and in sacrifice of those around you, which is why he identifies himself not as the one who writes the New Testament, not as one who plants churches, not as one who is called upon to preach over and over again. He identifies himself most prominently as a servant of Christ Jesus. But here's the truth, though. That word servant is a little bit empty compared to what Paul's actually saying here. The word that Paul's actually using here is bondservant or more strongly, slave. Listen to how Steve Lawson explains the use of this word. The word Paul uses is bondservant, which actually means slave. A slave is assigned to an even lower position than a servant. In the first century, a servant would have owned a few possessions and have been protected by certain rights. He would have been hired for a certain project and then was able to return home to his normal life. But this was not the case with a slave. A slave belonged to his master like a piece of property. He did not have a life of his own. Further, a slave did not own anything. He was entirely dependent upon his master to meet all his needs. Neither could he travel anywhere without his master's consent. His entire life existed to please his owner. Now, I understand that word slave is loaded for those of us in the United States. So when I'm using that word slave, I'm not talking about the transatlantic slave system, which is evil and should be condemned wrong. What's being used right here most often is someone who willingly put themselves under the masterhood of someone else. They committed themselves to be a slave of a family, most often because they had debt they couldn't pay off, they had no land of their own, or they were a foreigner in a new country, and their only option was to become a slave. And so that's what's being used here. Paul is saying, I was bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. He died to save me. I am no longer my own. I belong to someone else. He is my master and I am his slave. Now, how does understanding us being bond servants lead to joy? Right? How, how could that possibly lead to joy? What well, we'll think for a second about who your master is if you're a Christian. Your master is not an evil dictator. Your master is not someone who's waiting to pounce. Your master is not someone who just wants to use and abuse and then throw you out. Your master is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who took on flesh and dwelled among us, who he himself bowed to his Father's will, and he faced the cross on our behalf. Later on in Philippians, we will see that he emptied himself and in humility took on the form of a slave, and he faced the cross on our behalf, dying the death that we deserve and raising to new life on our behalf. We have a master who has our best interests in mind. So this isn't about us just saying, I'm a slave of someone who just wants to use and abuse me. This is us saying, I am submitting everything to the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that everything that happens in my life is ultimately for my good, because my Savior has my good in mind. 
Think even for a second about how this church at Philippi got started. Paul wanted to go somewhere entirely else, but the Holy Spirit said, you're not going there. And Paul was obedient to the Holy Spirit and he ended up in Philippi. And now we have this great letter of joy. There are things that happen in your life that you do not have answers for. And this side of glory, you probably won't have answers for. But when you can't trace his hand, you can trust his heart. Charles Spurgeon famously said that. Your master has your best interests in mind. And so when you lay your life down in service of him and of his people, joy instinctively follows, always. So there's at least two applications to that. Number one, humbly accept your position as a slave of Jesus. Right? That, that's a humbling thing to say if we're honest. Right? Well, one of the phrases we use in Story Kids is that God is in charge of everything, which means you're not. And if you're not in charge of everything, you belong to someone else and your joy is to be obedient to him. So when he says go, we go. When he says give, we give. When he says serve, we serve. We humbly accept our positions as his slaves, and then we serve, right? And, and we make calls here all the time to serve, right? The last few weeks, there's been like 20 kids in the nursery and like 20 kids in the two through five or three through five class. And if you've never been in those classrooms, they're small and it's loud. And the three through fives, if there's like 20 kids in there, probably 15 of them are boys, which means it smells and it's crazy. <laughs> we want to keep building that up and, and potentially in the future go to a second service to make more space for more people to serve. We're always seeking people to get on the production team, to get on the setup and teardown team. We have a youth ministry coming soon. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. And I, you're going to sign up to serve. Who, who gave the whoop? Well, <laughs> Andrew's getting paid to do that, so... <laughs> so you're gonna have to, we're gonna make a call, serve. And friends, when we call you to serve, it's not because we just want stuff to get done. We call you to serve because we know service leads to your joy. And not just that, it gets the gospel out. More people can hear. So first, your identity is a servant of Christ. If service is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. Number two, let's look at the second line there in verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, Story Church is full of saints. Grace Rancho is full of saints. The Vine, Foothill Bible, Water of Life, Hillside, Abundant Living. These churches are full of saints, and we rejoice in that. But I know the resistance you're hearing in that, right? Because to use that phrase, saint, is a big deal. So this, this past week, I decided to just look up, how do you become a saint? And conveniently, 
there was an article titled How to Become a Saint in 10 Steps by Roman Catholic priest James Martin. Now, I'll admit to you, I read this probably like eight times and I still don't get it, okay? But I'm gonna walk you through the 10 steps just so you can see what it, what, 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 what's advocated for in, in becoming a saint. All right, so first step here, be Catholic. I'm out. Then you gotta die. So we're all alive. So don't drink the juice, friends. Number three, a local devotion grows up around your memory. Your life is investigated. Your local bishop then sends your case to the Vatican. And then, I don't know if you intercede or other people intercede for a miracle. I don't know if like you're kind of like in purgatory praying. I don't know what's going on there. Number six. Number seven, the Vatican investigates the miraculous cure uh, number eight, the Vatican declares you blessed. Uh, and then another miracle has to happen because one's not enough. And then you become a saint. But what we learn here in this verse is that your journey to joy begins by understanding you're a saint in Christ Jesus. And you scan this room and you're saying, no, 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 I know these people around me, right? They're not saints. They're jerks and liars and perverts and gossipers and slanderers and power grabbers and thieves and addicts and adulterers, and they are the worst. And you'd be right on every count. Just don't get me started with you. But every single one of those people is a saint. And one of the things that's gonna rob you of joy in your faith is a deep misunderstanding of the fact that if you are a Christian, you are a saint. Saint simply means a holy one or a set apart one. And listen closely to me, church. You are not a saint because of what you have done, what you are currently doing, or what you could possibly do with 15 lifetimes over. You are a saint, Paul says, because you are in Christ Jesus. You are holy because Christ made you holy. You are set apart because Christ is set apart. You are righteous because the righteous blood of Jesus Christ clothed you and cleansed you and made you sparkling clean, brand new, forgiven, and a saint. You are a saint because Jesus made you one, not you. And so when we sin, we have this nagging thought in the back of our minds that rob us of joy. It goes like this, God doesn't love me. I didn't perform well enough today. I didn't hit God's benchmarks. God knows how awful I am. And yes, God, God knows how awful you are. And it's a lot more awful than you think you are. And yet he loves you. You are not a saint because you earned it. You are a saint because Christ earned it and graciously gifted it to you. And now I sense the objections in here, right? This is why I hate Christians and, and Christianity and the church. You all think you're perfect, but you're just a bunch of hypocrites. And in one sense, you are absolutely right. In another, you are horribly wrong. We are hypocrites. We talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk but you're wrong that we are perfect or we think we are. We're not saints because of our perceived perfection. We are saints because our savior is perfect and he covers us. 
And this should cause all of us in this place to love the gospel and love this church. Every person in this room struggles with temptation, struggles with sin, struggles with being a hypocrite, and we struggle with it on a daily basis. Sin will scrape our knees, bruise our eyes, and knock our teeth out. And yet simultaneously, we are deeply loved and not forsaken by the God of the universe. Because the invitation of the gospel is not come to me when you're perfect and you have it figured out. The invitation of the gospel is come to me with all of your mess and sin and I will make you perfect with the finished work of Jesus Christ in your place. And church, if I can be honest with you, as I, as I lead Story Church, I am constantly afraid of failure. If I could say something with, uh, without attempting to brag here, okay? Hear that caveat. I haven't failed much in life. And I'm not trying to brag. I failed a lot, but, but like not in big disastrous ways. But I'm terrified of failure of this church. And listen, I wanna be sober about my calling and I want that good, right, holy fear of God as I lead this church. But the problem with my fear of failure with this church is that I attach my metrics to what success and failure is, right? More butts in the seat, more bucks in the bank account, and more leaders churned out. All good and right things. But I've been haunted with the question since day one of this church. What if succeeding in those metrics means failing in what really matters? What if succeeding in more numbers means failing in what really matters? And church, what really matters to me, truly, if I boiled it all down to one single thing that I want the legacy of my life and my home and my family and this church to be, I want you to know who you are and how loved you are in Jesus Christ. Like, that's it. I could be done if all you understood and all you really gripped to is that you are fully known and fully loved by Jesus Christ so known and so loved that he calls you a saint. I want you to see and savor the gospel as beautiful and as your only hope. I want us to know that. I want us to know that we are saints because once we accept who we truly are in Christ Jesus, that's when we're gonna free ourselves from sin. That's when sin's mastery of us will loosen because sin will become more bitter and Christ will become more sweet. This is when we defeat the fear of man. What can man say to me? Jesus Christ has called me his. This is when we have an ever lessening sense of worry and anxiety about the future because my future is already finished. And this is when joy continues to come. Now, Paul does something fascinating here. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, later on in the letter, and we'll see this over the next 13 weeks or so, Paul will, will do this fascinating interplay between Philippi and heaven. And what he's doing here, what he's beginning to do here in verse one is he is saying, physically, Christians at Philippi, you are there. But spiritually, you are a saint seated at the right hand of the Father with Jesus Christ. He is saying you are a member of a heavenly colony which is different than the here and now. Now, this is important 
Because if you are seated at the right hand of the Father spiritually, nothing can be robbed from you. You can't be taken from that place. Jesus is enthroned and where he is, because you are clothed in him, you are there also. And nothing and no one can change that. So here's what happens. The ebbs and flows of this world and this, the politics of this country and our finances and the winds and the waves of this world are ever-changing circumstances threaten to rob us of our joy. But if we remember we are saints of another colony, of a heavenly colony, nothing can change that. I can face tomorrow even as it changes because I know my future. Jesus is alive and well, so our future is alive and well. We are saints in Christ Jesus. And then Paul puts a little tagline there. He says, with the overseers and deacons. Now that's a little bit scary for me personally because what Paul is doing there is he is saying, listen, if you're ever confused about what it means to be a servant and a saint of Christ Jesus, you need to look at the leaders of your church. You need to look at the elders and the deacons of your church because They're not doing it perfectly. They're gonna constantly fail at it, but they are striving forward in the gospel to try to live a life of faith and of trust and of hope in Jesus. And as that wanes in your life, you need to look to them and follow them. Anyone who becomes a pastor at Story Church is absolutely gonna be trained and tested in. Do they understand their primary job as a pastor at Story Church is to lay their life down in service of this body and to be people who live as saints, not because they did it through their own righteousness, but they did it through the righteousness of Jesus. So they are trying to become who they already are, more and more progressively holy as Jesus is holy. You are a saint if you are in Christ. So first, our joy begins by understanding we're slaves of Jesus. Second, our joy begins because we are saints in Jesus. Next point here. The journey to joy begins with understanding you are a recipient of God's good gifts. Now, here's the truth. Everything I just said, service and and sainthood, we're, we're gonna make a massive mess of all of that. We are fallen humans who fail constantly. We are gonna be too arrogant and entitled to see ourselves as servants of the good master, Jesus Christ. We are all too often gonna live like the old man, not the new man. But listen to me, Christian. The sum total of God's activity towards his children is good gifts. The sum total, everything that God does for his children is his good gifts towards us. Look at verse two with me. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so don't skip past a phrase right there. Paul says, there's grace coming your way and there's peace coming your way, but who's it from? It's from God our Father. And the New Testament is full of references of God being our father and us being adopted sons and daughters of his family. Let me just show you a few examples of that. 1 John 3.1 says this, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. You're a child of God, what does God give you? Love, for 
1 John 3 says, God gives you love, Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, we are heirs of the Father's kingdom, and we are heirs alongside Christ. Now, I said this last week. I'm going to say it this week. I'll probably say it again next week because we have to get this. In Christ Jesus, in the gospel, everything that happens to Jesus happens to the Christian. If you are a Christian, everything that has happened to Jesus will happen to you. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus died. You're going to die, but he didn't stay dead. You're going to live forevermore. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. You too will ascend with him. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things. Our original mandate in the garden of Genesis 1 and 2 was to have dominion, to rule and reign over all things. We will rule and reign over the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus Christ. Jesus is in paradise restored. You will be in paradise restored. Now, Paul says, or Romans 8 says, if you've suffered with him, you will also be glorified with him. Jesus has suffered. You're probably suffering and you will too one day be glorified and exalted with Jesus. It's not going to happen here and now, but everything that happens to Jesus happens to you. So what is coming your way as a son of God, as a daughter of God? Paradise, glory, love, Worship, ever-expanding joy for all of eternity. It's mind-boggling, friends. Everything broken and sinful and fractured about this world that you and I encounter on a daily basis will be eradicated in the new heavens and the new earth. We will be with Jesus forever in perfection. This is what we get as heirs of God. Finally, James 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Okay, so here's what's happening there. Right? If being heirs of Jesus is about our future reality, James 1 is about our here and now. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, which means, friends, everything that comes to pass in your life, and we don't understand this always, everything that comes to pass in your life is a good gift from the hand of the Father. Right? What the enemy intends to use for evil, what does God do? He uses it for good. God works all things out for the what? Good of his children. Which means anything and everything you're facing right now, God is aware of. He is not ignoring. 
He is governing. He is caring for you in it. He is shaping you in it. And he is showing you his love. And what does Paul say here in Philippians? What marks his gifts to us? Grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Peace is this idea of wholeness or shalom is the Hebrew word for it. It's this place of wellness deep in our beings. It's not about having peace in our circumstances. It's about vertical peace that we have with God. He is no longer our enemy. He is now our father. And if that's okay, everything's gonna be okay. We have peace with God and we have grace. Grace is about God's undeserved kindness towards us, even and especially on our worst days. God only has grace stored up for his children. So our journey to joy begins by understanding that the sum total of God's activity towards his children is good gifts. That's what he has for you, friends. Now, we're all on this journey to joy, and let me just say this. That's a good thing. We are all constantly chasing a joy high. We could say we're on a joy quest is a way to phrase that. And I want you to hear me say this. As your pastor, I want you to chase joy in your life with as much energy as you can muster. I want you to chase joy. Now, now hear me. Listen to Blaise Pascal, how he talks about this. He says, all men seek happiness or joy. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend, they all work towards this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. In other words, Blaise Pascal is saying, it is hardwired in who you are and how you were created that you are chasing after joy. We all go about it with different means and in different ways, but what governs almost every one of our decisions is our own joy. Seeking joy is the law of the human heart. See, Pascal points out that we seek joy, but C.S. Lewis takes it a step further. He says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what it, mean, what it means to have a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Seeking joy is the law of the human heart. And C.S. Lewis is saying, yes and amen, do it in the right way. Go after it in the right way. The scriptures teach us, Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in Jesus and your joy will increase. Romans 12 says, love people through your merciful acts and your joy will increase. Matthew 13 says, seek the greater treasure than the rewards of this world and your joy will increase. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord will strengthen you. If you want joy, don't chase joy. If you want joy, chase Jesus Christ. 
chase the things of God. And that's what the book of Philippians is all about. This is not some kind of faux, slap-happy, Flanders from the Simpsons type of joy. This is an enduring type of joy. This is a joy that will not crumble the second you face suffering. This is the type of joy that another person can't rob you from you because they accidentally hurt your feelings. This is not the kind of joy that Satan can take a needle to like a balloon. Philippians talks about a joy that transcends our circumstances, a joy in suffering, a joy in persecution, a joy in victory, a joy in defeat, a joy in weakness, a joy even in imprisonment like the Apostle Paul, joy even in death because death is gain for the Christian. Chase after joy. And Paul, in these first two verses, anchors our joy by understanding who we are because of what Christ has done. So we get our joy not by fooling around with mud pies, like C.S. Lewis says. We get our joy by being a slave to our good master, Jesus Christ. You don't own him, he owns you. You don't tell him what to do. He tells you what to do. And this is not a bad thing. We lay our lives down and say, use me as you will. Why did Jesus face the cross? For the joy set before him. There was joy on the other side of the cross. And as you lay your life down, I promise you, there is joy on the other side of your sacrifice. You get joy by walking in your sainthood. You are a saint simply because Jesus made you one. You are set free because Jesus set you free. Now live in the freedom and in the joy of being his. You will get joy by receiving his gifts of grace and of peace. In other words, be his child. Be wholly dependent upon him. Rely upon him. Lean into him. You can't do it. He can. So you want to get joy? You want to chase joy? Don't fool around with mud pies when there's a vacation by the sea. Don't chase after the things of this world. Chase after the things of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, do that by knowing your identity. You are a servant and a slave and a child of God. And this is good. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, which convicts and stirs and sifts and changes us. I pray that today you would help us to receive your word with joy and that you would truly give us joy, that we would indeed lay our lives down in sacrifice for you, for your kingdom, and for our brothers and sisters, that we would indeed see ourselves as saints, not because we accomplished it, but because you did, and that we would become who we already are in you. I pray we would see ourselves as your children and as your children, you give us nothing but good gifts. And I pray as a result of all of this, joy would spring forth in our lives. I pray you would wean us from our joy being in the things of this earth, fooling around with mud pies, or even our joy shifting because of circumstantial change. And I pray you would root our joy where it is firmly fixed, enthroned in the person and the work of Jesus Christ.
We want joy. We're made for joy. We can't produce it in of ourselves. And so we ask God that by your Holy Spirit, you would indeed give us joy and that you would do it by helping us understand who we are because of what Christ has done. Pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you're new to Story Church, um, what we do now is we're, we're gonna sing a song and then I'm gonna come back up and we're gonna partake in communion together. Now, you have a couple of options here. You can stay seated and, and just be sung over or if you want, you can stand and sing alongside Sean and Sarah. Um, but either way, this time is built for us to reflect on the word of God, ask the spirit to teach us, to convict us and to show us areas where we need to repent where we need to turn from, from sin and trust in Jesus. We need to ask the Spirit to give us hope, to give us faith, and, and even, if I may, give us joy, that he would give us joy today. So spend this next song doing uh, whatever the Spirit leads you to do.